Shelley Buck was born into a creative family in the Midwest, and she moved to California after college to follow her dream of working for Disney. It was there she met and fell in love with her husband, Chris, who worked in animation and would one day direct the Oscar-winning movie, Frozen. After Shelley and her husband married, they had their first child, Ryder. She decided to be a stay-at-home, full-time mom to him and the two brothers who followed. When her 23-year-old son, Ryder, was diagnosed with cancer, her journey, her life's journey, went to unimaginable places. This is one story that is going to grip your heart and yet encourage you in whatever you may be going through as she tells this unbelievable story. Thank you for joining me today at Never Ever Give Up Hope. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Shelley Buck is my guest today. She is a storyteller and artist of her original jewelry at Shell Ray Designs. We're going to have to check that out, and I'm sure she will share the story behind that as well. Her story is a tragic one, but just as so many stories of trauma and loss, there is also a thread of hope that gave her strength to survive and to then share her incredible journey. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, Shelley, before we begin the story of your son, Ryder, tell us about the love story in your life and where this all began. Well, I was 25 when I left my first job after college in Chicago and moved to California to work for Disney. There, I was very interested in animation. It was the end of my rainbow. And I met my future husband, working in animation. We had several adventures. One of them was riding our bicycles across the country. And that pretty much sealed the deal for our partnership. We were married, immediately started our family. Then Ryder was born to our delight. He was born an, an old soul, a really calm character to contrast with my excitable personality. <laughs> We we spent a lot of time, we spent a lifetime, his lifetime, learning to make space for one another to be who we really are. And I had to back off and give him the space to be a quiet child. 
I finally got my storm of a child with my third son, um, Reed, and the middle son, Woody, was kind of magical and in his own way um, and really brought the sparkle into our home. Um, but my third son was what I expected when I started having boys. In contrast, Ryder was, you know, meditative and self-contained. Even as a child, he busied himself with his dinosaurs and crayons. Um, he was quite artistic and loved music from the time he was a little boy. We could always calm him with music. Now, he got involved in music, correct? He did. Um, as he grew uh, into high school, he started playing the guitar and took a few lessons and then started teaching himself with just uh, tools he found online. Eventually, um, he went to school to study music in Hollywood, formed a band. They still play together, um, not as much as they did because they've all kind of gone their separate ways, had children and pursued other careers. But um, yeah, Ryder had this wonderful band made up of many different instruments and vocal talent. What kind of music? You know, it was mostly Ryder's original music. Oh, you're which kidding. Which is a folk rock, very easy to listen to, and you can understand the words. He tells stories with his, with his music, and they were mostly love stories. A Young Man's Heart. Uh, this is what was going on in him and in his life. So he wrote one one song after another for different women. We always joked that, you know, there would be a showdown if the girls all got <laughs> together and said, you know, he wrote this song for me. Oh, no, he didn't. He wrote it for me. <laughs> that was where we left off. He had He had this wonderful band, including, after he passed, including my two sons who sang... Reed, the youngest, took over and sang lead vocals for Ryder, and then Woody sang backup. We have recordings of Ryder, which he did before uh -huh. he passed, um, and then we have the band also recording the rest of his music, some of which came out of his journals, with notes for what the music should be, and he had some very talented members of his band who also helped write the music. We have three CDs of his music, which is a real blessing. I no have them kidding. In the car. That's fantastic. Yeah. Tell us now about the day that he got the diagnosis, how it affected you, how it, of course, affected him, what his attitude was, and how it affected your family. Ryder called me. I was painting a graphic at the high school on one of the buildings. He said, I've got good news and bad news, Mom. Which do you want first? So I said, Well, give me the bad news. And he said, Well, I have cancer. But it's the kind that can be cured. And I was like, uh. okay, I need more of the story. Uh, I need to talk to the doctor. And I tried calling the doctor's office and they said, you know, he's 22. He has to give written consent. I called him back and I was kind of in a panic at this point. And I said, you know, I know you're at school, but you really have to write something out and have the office fax it to the doctor so that I can talk to him. Oh, mom, I'll do it tonight. Uh. <laughs> I flipped. I said, no, you have to do it now. And I went into full on cancer mom mode, doing all sorts of research and, you know, changing the diet in the house, buying a juicer for him, you know, making sure the dogs were always washed 
And he went in, he had his surgery within a week and then started um, chemo within a couple of weeks after that. It threw us into, I was, I was with him every day. He was inpatient and he would be inpatient for one week and then outpatient for two. Uh-huh. I was with him every day that he was inpatient and the doctor, you know, finally looked at me one day and said, you're still here, you know, again. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm his mom. Of course I am. You're no uh, kidding. My middle son, Woody, was away at college during this time in Michigan and Reed was at home, a junior in high school. So I had to rely on the choir teacher and the theater director and the coach of the water polo team to kind of keep an eye on Reed, along with my mother and sister who were who stepped in when, you know, I had to be gone all day. Like I said, I kept a very close eye on Ryder. And then when he was home, you know, he would feel lousy for a couple of days. But then he was off and running. And I hmm. mean, he scheduled gigs in between his chemo treatments. Um, and he went camping and hiking and surfing. And, you know, I told all, the doctor all of this and he said, really, Ryder, you've got to calm down. You really can't be, you know, doing all this stuff where you could hurt yourself. Your white blood cell counts are low and they don't like to see that in the emergency room when they're setting a bone. You know, I encouraged him to stay home, but it was really impossible. He wanted to live life. Um, It was, you know, uh, obviously very precious to him, always had been, you know, he'd always embraced life to the fullest. But this was with a different, uh, different intent. He didn't want to miss anything. So I spent a lot of time wondering where he was, you know, trying to set curfews, which were never adhered to. And going to his gigs, you know, um, I continued to support him in every way I possibly could. The family revolved around him. Sorry, were you scared at this point or encouraged? um, I was encouraged and I had faith in his doctors. We were at USC Norris. They came so highly recommended by several people in the field that I felt that we were going to be okay. You know, I never considered the idea that he might die of cancer. It just wasn't on my radar, and I didn't allow it to take any space in my mind or heart. And Ryder had such a great attitude that it was hard to feel anything but encouraged. So we just followed protocol, and like I said, I tried to keep him on a leash, but that was pretty much impossible. We got through it. It was There were three rounds of chemo, which amounted to about three months. And then he was turned loose for the holidays. The doctor said, you know, your numbers look good. We'll see you in three months for a checkup. And that would have been March. But he got an appointment with his primary care physician in January. And I said, you know, do all the tests, do his cancer markers too, please. And they found that his numbers were up again. So he went straight back into chemo in January and this time had four rounds. And that took us through into June. You know, the doctor said the last round was for insurance, but I never told Ryder that or he wouldn't have shown up. What a it roller was, coaster, right? It was tougher. It was it was a tougher uh, regimen 
the the second round, he got sicker and lost his hair again, was a little a little more discouraged. I mean, it was enough already to go yeah. through what he'd gone through and to have more of it ahead of him. And it was it was grueling. They used a stronger cocktail of chemo the second round and um he got sicker and he was more tired and he spent more time at home on the couch um watching soccer and playing his guitar um he discovered his favorite band while he was in inpatient during that second round of treatments um Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and he loved them because they had such a great spirit about their music and they included all these different instruments and just exuded love which is exactly what Ryder um wanted to do with his band and was you know attempting to do he kind of he followed them when he could when he was outpatient he went all the way up the coast of San Francisco to see them and then again to the Hollywood Bowl where he took me and I was honored to be included then in June he was given a clean bill of health how did you respond oh my gosh i wanted to celebrate of course of course we celebrated but you know on the way home from the hospital i said let's go out to lunch you know what do you want to do and he had friends he wanted to see and so we didn't get to go out to lunch but we definitely celebrated at home very shortly like a couple of days after he was cleared he had a gig in the in the local park to support Children's Hospital LA uh the same day we had play for my youngest son at the high school and then we all went out to dinner and we we celebrated then what an amazing celebration and a close knit family yes very and all during this time i shouldn't exclude my husband who was working you know 12 hour days in the final um throes of of producing frozen um directing it and so he would come to the hospital after a full day of work you know he'd get there around 7 or 8 o'clock at night and spend 2 or 3 hours with rider and then come home and crash and sometimes rider would appear to be asleep you know one time chris started to leave and rider opened his eyes and said you don't have to go yet dad uh-huh. Uh-huh. it was very sweet so he appreciated mostly appreciated the company and know? and how long of a time line is there from the time that he was diagnosed into the time when he was given the clean bill of health uh it was 9 months really that quick wow yeah. that that was pretty encouraging all in itself i would think Yeah, they were pretty intense about the protocol. They had every intention of getting him out of there clear. Well, that is good news. And I'm sure like you said, you were elated and the whole family and Ryder is ready to live his life new and afresh. And this is where we're going to take a break for just 30 seconds and when we come back, you're going to tell the rest of this amazing story. and how it impacted your life in particular we'll be right back Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir Battered Hope She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another gang raped and left for dead loss of a child 
husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Welcome back to Never Ever Give Up Hope. And we're speaking with Shelley Buck, who has shared the story of her 23-year-old son who was able to beat cancer. And it's exciting. And I can't wait to hear the rest of this story, as I know there's going to be an incredible journey that Shelley and her family went through. So Shelley, let's pick it up now. What happened next? Well, that summer, um, Ryder, as I said, was ready to grab life and run with it. And he found a world music class um, taking place for the month of July in Bali. And, you know, I was hesitant. Um, it was a long ways away. Uh, he needed to have a checkup with the doctor at some point that summer. But I just felt like he really needed it, you know, and he said, I need mm -hmm. to get away. I need to get away from the cancer house and basically cancer mom. Um, so <laughs> oh, we let him go and he blossomed spiritually. Um, he, you know, he studied the culture and the, the religious ceremonies and the meanings behind, um, behind them. And came home a different, calmer, if it's possible, really? more meditative, more spiritual, um, more open and more loving human being and uh, just so much more mature. And he was already mature beyond his years. Hmm. Um, and having faced your own mortality, it, that will do that. Of course. But but he grew up, as I said, an old soul. So he was always kind of mature beyond his years. Um, so he had a wonderful time in Bali. And we, of course, celebrated when he came home. And then he went back to school um, and was pursuing his degree in music, uh, guitar, and songwriting. And was making a name for himself in Hollywood with the band and with his studies. Um, and then, uh, October, he had done gigs all the way through the fall. And in October, he went to another Edward Sharp concert and insisted that Chris and I join him. And he took several members of the band with him. We just had a wonderful night. They asked at one point if anyone had a story to tell and Ryder was out of his seat and at that stage and had the <laughs> microphone in his hand before I, I could blink. Um, and he told his story to the crowd about how Edward Sharp, you know, had gotten him through his cancer and how they lifted him up and um, he wanted to thank the band. So Aww. it was beautiful and the place went up for grabs. And um, one week later, he didn't come home one night and that wasn't uncommon for him because he he was always out you know playing his guitar and being with uh -huh, people uh -huh. 
But the police came to my door that morning and said, you know, uh, does Ryder Buck live here? And I thought, oh, he's in jail. This is great. <laughs> and they said, no, he's been in an accident and we're here to take you to the hospital. Now, the only person home with me was my youngest, Reed, because Woody was in college and Chris was doing publicity in New York. So we went to the hospital and got the news that Ryder had been, his car had broken down on the freeway and he started to walk home in the middle of the night in a dense fog and two cars had been racing through the fog and hit him. So he was gone. And that threw me into the deepest, darkest pit I can even imagine. I didn't want to live anymore. Of course. Um, I called my husband and said he was gone. And he said, gone where? (laughs) Yes. He's dead. And you can stay there and finish your publicity. There's nothing to do here. It's, It's done. And he said, you're crazy. I'll be on the next flight, you know. And, of course, I was. I had no idea which end was up. But we had a beautiful service for him. 1,200 people came. We expected about 300. Wow. And, you know, there were overflow rooms. And the his band played um, several of Ryder's songs. But the, the most amazing thing was that Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros came and played at his service. Oh. This was one week after they'd met him. And he had spent a lot of time backstage with them, meeting all the members of the band and really making a substantial impression on them. I mean, I just saw one of them again about a week ago. And, you know, he told stories about Ryder and how he had impacted him. And uh, just with his philosophies and spirituality and his love of life, it was a beautiful celebration and went on for over three hours and everybody didn't want it to end so my goodness we sent him out with uh with the very best effort we had that began the deepest darkest road i could ever i couldn't even imagine it how long ago was this shelley this was it'll be eight years and this october it probably took me three to find my footing, um, you know, there, it was a process. And of course, uh-huh. I continued to live and I had my other two boys and my husband to live for. Now, the most, probably one of the most difficult things we had was just one month after Ryder passed, um, Frozen was released. And that was the most schizophrenic time because, you know, we had to be up. Uh-huh. Chris had to be up for publicity, up for parties, and then people would say, you know, congratulations, and I'm so sorry. So it was yes. up, down, yes, and yes. Down. constant. And then, yeah, the Oscars came, and he won, and that was a beautiful night. And what I had to do was um, compartmentalize my life and my heart between these two worlds the one of grief and the one of celebration. And that was, um, that was a real challenge, but you know, I had to do what I had to do. I had to be there for my husband and the rest of my family. We missed Ryder. We just, of course, as, as a family, there was a big gaping hole in our lives. Fast forward 
a couple more years and at about the four year mark, Ryder had said to me, mom, write my story. And I thought, you know, this is too, the too tall in order. I don't know. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. But at a certain point, I felt like I could tackle it. And I had a journal that I had started the day he was diagnosed all the way through the grief process. Um, and it was an online journal where people that I selected had, were privy to it. Um, so everyone could keep up with the process of his cancer and his death. And so I had that to as a launching pad. And I found that my best friend, Kathy Curtis, who's also my co-author, she was a ghostwriter, um, is, and she also worked in um, grief and healing through um, writing. Uh, we started off with the journal and we put together a book over a period of two years. We launched it and published it on Writer's 30th birthday one year ago. So it was June 30th, 2020. From there, I've been, we have been doing podcasts and spreading his story and having concerts where we could, you know, sell his CDs. And we established a, immediately established a, a scholarship in his name over at the high school for musicians. And um, so everything we made on the CDs and the T-shirts went to the scholarship fund for parties at the house to, to promote that. Now, what or who, rather, is encouraged by this story? In other words, what are you finding as far as your audience goes? Like, who are you encouraging? Is it young people? Is it people who have survived cancer? Is it who do, who's your your audience for this message um and it's a message of hope i'm assuming even though it really is yes okay the the way Ryder went through his challenge and the way our life has been since we lost him and i don't i don't usually use the word lost um because he's Mm -hmm. not lost to us he is very present um so uh i believe that it's it's especially encouraging to young people who are finding their way through the challenges of just growing up. Um, it's encouraging to people who are going through um, challenges, adults and young people, uh, health challenges or otherwise. And of course, parents of young adults and even young children, just in the way that I let my boys be who they really were born to be, um, and that those uh, parenting skills that I developed just by listening to them. Mm, um, that's wonderful. So I think it's encouraging on a lot of levels for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And the name of your book? The name of the book is Leave Your Light On. Share that. Share why that title. Um, well, that's the name of the first songwriter ever wrote. It was prescient because it became his mantra for life. And it just, it was, it's the theme of the book. It's really kind of a how to and how I did it, how he did it, um, and how I 
found my light again and have been able to live in the light um, again. And that in itself must be extremely encouraging for anybody who has gone through this kind of tragedy. I can't imagine the emotion, which you definitely have shared, is a roller coaster ride, by by lack of a better term. But you're up and you're down, and, and, and like you said, you have to also be in the public eye, which is you were not allowed to just go in the corner, I'm assuming, and right. just grieve and... Did you ever have that opportunity to grieve? And if so, tell us how important that is, if you feel it is. Um, absolutely. It's it's necessary to walk through the darkness and know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't feel like it when you're in the tunnel. I remember the first time I smiled after Ryder passed because it was so remarkable to me that I actually could. And then, you know, my other boys brought joy into my life. And like I said, I, I had to compartmentalize my, my grief from the rest of life. And I certainly spent most of my energy in the grieving process, which we did. We installed a bench at the top of his favorite mountain. Like I said, we did the scholarship, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Did the CDs, we did everything we could to commemorate his life. Right. And that was part of my therapy. And what about your jewelry? Is that part of that as well? Well, the jewelry was born when I had three boys who were um, reaching puberty and running me ragged. Um, <laughs> and I needed something. I mean, the house was full of testosterone, and that's all there was to it. So I found this outlet. In, in jewelry making that was, you know, completely feminine and surrounded me with, with feminine yeah. energy and clients. And though I did make some jewelry for men, it was mostly for women. And um, it, the creative process is so healing, um, so therapeutic, that even after writer's passing, I continue to do that. The name of the of the business is shellray.com. That's my my website, S-A-G-L-R-A-E. I pretty much have a portfolio up online and there's contact information there. Yes, we'll definitely include that on your on the page notes as well. That's awesome. What kind of jewelry is it? You said very feminine. Oh, it's a vast array. I go from the very bold and large okay. <laughs> And, you know, whimsical, um, coming from my animation background, uh, mm. a little wild, and then everything in between that and the very delicate, um, sublime. Uh, but all of them have uh, a sense of humor or wit to them. There's, um, there's, they had to interest me in order for me to make them. I had fun with them, and I continue to get compliments. Is there another book in the works? There is not. There is a screenplay in the works. Oh, really? It's in its infancy. It's in its very early stages. We're not quite finished with the first draft yet, but we do have um, interested parties who are um, guiding us through the process, as well as my husband who knows the process inside and out. Of course. Now, if you could summarize word of encouragement 
for anyone who has gone through this, has gone, you know, had tragedy happen in their life, what would you say to that individual? Hold on by doing the work of grieving and there is recovery. I live a joyful life now. It doesn't mean I don't miss Ryder with every breath I take. I have found joy in life again and it's possible. Now it's been eight years, but the, the things I've done in the in the process have really helped. The writing, um, and it doesn't have to be a book, but the writing of the journals were so therapeutic. Just keeping him alive. We talk about him, I tell his story. Uh, a dinner party doesn't go by that he's not present in conversation. There, there is there is a light at the end of the darkness. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate what you said about keeping him alive. I think that is a real motivation for people because we don't have to, when we go through tragedy, we don't have to forget them. We don't have to put them out of our thoughts in order to heal. But what you're saying is by actually keeping them omnipresent, you are that's a healing process. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, exactly. Excellent. Well, I thank you so much, Shelley. I I know that there was a moment even during this interview that no matter if it has been eight years, it still affects you. It affects anyone listening. This is an emotional, tragic thing that you had to endure. And you made the choice to not allow that to be the message but to continue not only living life and encouraging those who have gone through tragedy to live their lives to the fullest, to keep your son's life alive in your home and everywhere. And mm-hmm. in the music, it will he will live forever. And I thank you for that encouragement for anyone who has gone through this. And the awareness of what you went through really helps us as individuals to just understand we'd go through that or we know someone who has. So I thank you for that so much. That really touched my heart. Anything you want to say in closing? Yes. If you know someone who's going through either a really difficult time or a tragedy, the people ask, you know, what should I do? What can I say? I don't know what to say. And really, Mm. I'm sorry is about the only thing that can be said. But the most important thing is to lend, you know, company and an ear and allow Mm. them to to speak um, endlessly about their loved one or what they're going through. Um, Just just your presence is gift enough. That is incredible. I really appreciate that. And I remember when there was a year when I had several losses in my life. And the what I really wanted was people to ask me about that. Because you don't want to necessarily bring it up, but you just wish that they would go beyond that. I'm so sorry to <laughs> tell us about him. Mm-hmm. And so I totally relate and thank you for reiterating that, that that is so important to allow people, it's not necessarily sharing their grief, but they're sharing who that person was and and, and just keeping them alive. And that's exciting in all in itself. And I appreciate you bringing that up so very much. Thank you, Shelley, 
for sharing your story today. I never, ever give up hope. Thank you very much, Carol. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.